Okay. If I'm going to take you on... You won't never regret it. Look, just listen to me. If I take you on... I promise I'll work so hard. God, this is a mistake already. Mm-mm. I'm listening, boss. If I take you on, you don't say anything. You don't question me. You don't ask why. You don't say anything except maybe, uh, yes, Frankie. And I'm going to try to forget the fact that you're a girl. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Our guest this week is film critic and filmmaker Stephen Benedict, and we are going to be discussing Million Dollar Baby, which for me, in 2017, the New York Times voted it number three of the best movies made in the 21st century, but a lot of people struggle with this film, specifically the third act, which I suppose I can spoil, but it goes in an incredibly dark direction with euthanasia becoming the sort of dominant uh, narrative for redemption and, oh, it's dark. Um, So this was a film that... uh, has some incredible performances. Clint, Hilary Swank, Morgan Freeman. I think it's beautifully written by Paul Haggis. I think there's a lot of poetic beauty about it and some laughable realism in terms of the boxing scenes and not not much attention paid to that. But this is a this is an interesting film to to drop into and and start a series of we're going to go on from here to Raging Bull and, and Rocky. And, uh, but I just thought this was a good place to start. So this is Stephen Benedict and Million Dollar Baby is the film we're talking about today. Uh, I just wanted to start with you. I'm sure you've read this before. Um, this is from Roger Ebert. Clint Eastwood's Million Dollar Baby is a masterpiece, pure and simple, deep and true. It tells the story of an aging fight trainer and a hillbilly girl who thinks she can be a boxer. It is narrated by a former boxer who is the trainer's best friend, but it's not a boxing movie. It is a movie about a boxer. What else is it? What else it is, all it is, how deep it goes, what emotional power it contains, I cannot suggest in this review because I will not spoil the experience of following this story into the deepest secrets of life and death. This is the best film of the year. Right. And are we going to look at the movie, Bryn, from the perspective of 2004, or do you want to look at it from 2020? Are we going to try and cast ourselves back to when the movie came out and the, the shock of the third act, or are we going to, do you want to dig deep into it and sort of see... The, the dreadful cliches that are at play in the film, but I think right. the cliches, we forgive the cliches because I think the film is is sincere, you know, um, and I think that's the reason why uh, Roger David responded so favorably to it. But I think there are certainly points in the film when you look at it and go, oh, that really is straining credibility or oh, that's just, just, just an old crock, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I, I One of the reasons I was so interested in this film is because the New York Times in 2017 voted it number three of the greatest films of the 21st century. 
and that's pretty that's pretty big yeah yeah and and there are elements of it that I think are extraordinarily good, and then there are others that, as you say, I don't know have aged terribly well um where it seems to take license that is almost laughable, so uh you start where you would like. I'm happy to do both. I don't know why we should just choose one because I think both are interesting to wrote yeah. go down. Yeah, I think um, I'm trying to cast myself back to when I first saw the movie and I was I was moved by it. And then I remember at certain points in the film going that stretching credibility. And I think, you know, we've spoken about this before with regard boxing pictures. The vast majority of audiences are not familiar with the, the, the world of the subject as we are with the vast majority of movies. We're not familiar with spacecraft, space travel or science or politics. So when we look at a, a boxing picture, we're really looking at it through the, ra- through, through the prism of romanticism. Yeah. You know, the ideal of what it's supposed to bring to us, what it's supposed to mean to us. We project ourselves onto the characters. What is the character? What the arc of the character? What is the character's arc within our moral sphere? And I think in that respect, you know, Million Dollar Baby succeeds because there is this um, very, very clear element of friendship, relationships lost, uh, loneliness and deprivation. Um you know, where the characters deny themselves the possibility of a relationship. I think it's interesting that of all the characters in the film, uh, Clint Eastwood being the most obvious and Maggie being the most obvious, they don't have families. Yeah, I know Maggie's family are there, but the way they treat her and the way she's been trying to, to serve them, uh, they have pushed her away um, for a variety of really, really um, uh, complex socioeconomic reasons. Um, that You know, they get more money from welfare. You know, yeah. Maggie is just a check for them, and uh, even her sister is estranged or not is is distant from her from her partner because he's in prison. Uh, her dad isn't there. She speaks very very affectionately of her father. Clint's character Frankie is estranged from his daughter Katie to the point that she he sends her letters and she never replies to them. She will she sends them back. Uh, Scrap we've no idea. Morgan Freeman's character. Uh, you know, um, just ex- he literally lives in the gym. That's where he lives. He has no contact outside of it. The young character of Danger, the very, very simple man, um, uh, has been rejected by his mother and his mother's new boyfriend just literally dumps him on the street in L.A. Right. Um, and then the only I think it's interesting because in, in that respect, many of the characters are not only lost, but broken. You know, they're severely broken people. And that that idea of being broken comes through very, very. It's almost like the the metaphor, the subtext, punctures through. It bursts through, like the chestburster or an alien. It, it just bursts through. The subtext becomes the main text in the third act. You know, when, when the injury, the brokenness of that. But the interesting thing for me, Bryn, was that the the one person who actually has a family is um, Big Willie, who then starts to become the world champion. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I I doubt for a second that that was one of the themes that William Haggis, or sorry, um, um, Paul Haggis. Thank you. That Paul Haggis had in mind when he was adapting FX O'Toole stories. But it just it just struck me. I said, wow, these one person who seems to be happy and has a working relationship and a communicative relationship with his wife. Uh, they're talking about her, her. Their daughter is is going doing piano, and he's got to go and collect her. He can't do more practice, and then Clint Eastwood's character complains, "But well, you know, what's wrong with their car?" And he says, "I'll get you a car." And it's almost material things. And um, 
I, I, in doing a little bit of research here, I, I discovered that um, the character of Maggie is partially based on a true life boxer, Julie Crockett. Mm. And uh, I was able to just stick out um, her response to the film and what the movie got right and what the movie got wrong. And she was saying that the movie gets completely wrong. And I wouldn't know this as a, as a non-boxing person. Is Maggie's character never got tired. She never got physically tired. She never got sore. She got injured. She had a bro- nose broken, but she doesn't get sore. And also the other thing is struggling to make weight. I never knew that. I, I, I just thought, you know, hey, I'm a bantam weight or I'm a heavyweight. I've no problem in getting that. But then she, she says, um, the important thing for me that I picked up in here is, but in doing it, you're tired, you're scared, it hurts, you're lonely and deprived. And that's really, for me, was the, is the starting point for so many of the characters, loneliness and deprivation. And it's the yearning to, to connect. It's the need to connect, to reach out and form some sort of relationship where the characters are so broken that they can't. You know? And um, I, I think with, with, uh, in an email exchange, we had touched upon the idea of casting the story and how much how important casting is and considering Hilary Swank had you know she had come from nowhere like okay all actors and actresses come from nowhere but very very few actresses or actors come from nowhere and hit the hit the Oscar in the very very first performance and I think she she had won her first Oscar for Boys Don't Cry which I think is a really scintillating film I watched that again at the beginning of lockdown and it's it's um it's beautiful because it's honest and it's really hard because it's honest. And I think that's one of the reasons why they cast her, because I was reading a little bit that they had originally thought of Sandra Bullock. Hmm. And you get the feeling that Sandra Bullock could definitely be, has, has that physicality. You know, th- you know she seems to have um, a, a strong physical capability as an athlete. Uh, Ashley Judd was also considered. But I think what really would make this movie would have helped this movie transcend the 2004 screening and, and Oscar success and catapult us straight into this coming decade would be if they had literally, if they had reimagined the character of Maggie, kept her name, Maggie Fitzgerald, but cast somebody like, now go with me on this, Regina King, Jada Pinkett Smith, oh. Tandy Newton, they're all the same age. They're all the same age as Hilary Swank. I think the character of, of Maggie is in her early 30s. Now, I need you to correct me on this. Is that How unusual is that for an, a, a boxer to come through at that age? Is that false? Well, it's a weird... <clears throat> the era that it's depicting, women's boxing was still largely relegated to being kind of a sideshow. Okay, right. So it didn't have the part... It wasn't permitted in the Olympics, for example... Um, so that restriction led it to be most of the participants were coming from weird backgrounds like Muhammad Ali's daughter could have no background in training in boxing and within a year or two could enter it and become the greatest champion ever it's a a very different ball game now where you've got so many more participants and talent pools being into it so it, 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 it is plausible at that time that a Max Fitzgerald could come in. Now it would be much more difficult, but but, I mean, there was no money in it. There was no recognition in it. Um, I had a friend actually that I came up with in amateur boxing. She would never let me go, go near her story, but 
she made so little money as a female boxer, a professional boxer, she even became a world champion, that she was simultaneously a stripper in Las Vegas to make ends meet. Wow. And, and kept it secret from her family and, and really led two lives. But she's making tremendous money as a stripper just to subsidize the boxing career because you needed a second and a third job to be a boxer as a, as a male. But as a female, it's even more extreme. Right. Yeah. And you, you see that in Million Dollar Baby when um, Maggie is working literally three jobs. Yeah. You know, and um, I, I, I was able to access uh, the script. Uh, you can, you know, it's readily available online. And the way they introduce uh, Maggie's character when she's looking for, she's looking to wait tables in the evening. Yeah. And the owner of the restaurant says, well, you know, uh, are you going to wash? And do you want, and she says, oh, yes, sir, I wash daily. And it, it's a really, really poignant, cutting introduction to the character of where she comes from and how difficult it is for her. Um, so I can understand this, that idea of working two or three jobs to, <laughs> to help to finance uh, the, uh, the the sport, the, the passion for it. In actual fact, I remind, reminded there when you mentioned uh, the lady you knew who's uh, uh, as a stripper, it reminds you just a little bit of the dynamic that you saw in The Wrestler. Yeah. The movie and when his relationship with Marisa Tomei. You know? Right. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a really, really strange one. Um, but I just think that if... Let me just let me push the the casting a little bit further here. Sure. Um, if we decide that Regina King is going to be Maggie, I would say then you put Morgan Freeman in the role of Frank, mm. and you relegate Clint to the to Scrap. Interesting. Um, yeah. I think without necessarily changing the characters at all. I mean, I remember. Um, uh, Warren Beatty very famously said that casting it ch changes the writing. Casting mm. doesn't change character. Casting, in effect, changes the plot. Because mm. if you're bringing Al Pacino, let's just pretend, let's go with this craziness, let's pretend that Al Pacino is the, is the uh, quiet Al Pacino, not hoo-ha. Yeah. <laughs> even, even Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman could have played Clint's character, mm. uh, character Frankie. You know, very, very quiet and, and, and toned down. Um, I think, though, it just it, it changes the dynamic a lot more. Uh, if if Maggie had been played by Regina King or Jada Pinkett Smith, because it elevates the, the, the just purely by skin tone and ethnicity. Um, it shows just how marginalized everybody is from the center of success. Um, wealth, um, and it would have given a different inflection because Maggie's car Maggie's Maggie's family are, are living in a trailer park, you know. And then it would have probably meant. I mean, you know, obviously I don't live in America, so I could be completely wrong on this. But Regina King's family would they've been from the projects, or would they would they be suburban? You know, I I don't know, but I just think that in terms of you were saying the New York Times list making it the third best film of the century, and that's that's really calling. A big one. I wouldn't even call it Clint Eastwood's third best picture. Mm. You know, um, uh, I just think that if they're going to say that, you needed this layer that you have an opportunity to to, to layer in different issues to the story, other than pure, it, it purely being a, a, a romantic, a very sad, tragic story. But it, it really is romanticism. I think yeah. you know, uh, people say it's hard hitting and it's brutal and 
very gritty and real. You know, American cinema does only very, very rarely, but does American cinema do realism? You know, uh, Hollywood does romanticism. And I, I think the reason, this is coming back to the reason why I think part of the film works is because, you know, realism and romanticism are diametrically opposed. You know, mm. romanticism is fantasy. It's, it's idealization. Realism, you know, it's what you get in your face. And I think the, where realism and romanticism meet is credibility. Mm. You make this implausible plausible. And there are moments when it just, it, it rings emotionally true, whether it's factually possible or realistically possible, there are moments when you just go, yeah, okay, uh, I, I believe that, the the delivery. And I think part of it, Bryn, is because, um, I, you know, I think Clint Eastwood's best picture is Unforgiven. Yeah. And, but um, one of the lovely layers, initially when that came out in 92, I think it was in yeah, 92, when that came out, people say the initial response was, oh, Clint is... is deconstructing his screen persona. And that was the that was the way in which they framed the critique. And in the years since, you look at the movie and you go, no, it's it's actually yet another part of the revisionist Western, where mm. it, it, it examines uh, misogyny, it examines gun control, it examines uh, racism. You know, the, uh, English Bob is hired to shoot, to shoot quote, Chinamen working yeah. the railroad. The only black person in the film is whipped to death. You know, so um, so there was a, in a way in Unforgiven, Clint was sort of having a little bit of a wink at the audience going, you know, there's a perspective here. There's a distanciation. But there's none of that in in Mill and Donner Baby. It's all sincere. And, and sometimes the sincerity works and sometimes it's maudlin. But I think what's one of the reasons why it works is because they play it straight. Do you think do you think also you talk about the credibility um, part of the tragedy of this on a, on a meta level is that this was based on the 2000 book by Jerry Boyd, a former trainer, his whole life had been as a boxing trainer, um, died at 70, um, so dies two years before the film is made in 2002. Double tragedy. Yeah, so he never sees this kind of success. I believe in the intro to FX Tools book, he says, the only thing I didn't do in boxing or writing is make money. Right. But I kind of did everything else. You do feel that in this story. There, There's something earned about the stakes here uh, in the same way that you're saying about Hilary Swank, that she's somebody that came from no beginnings in mm-hmm. Spokane, Washington. She's moved around. She's sleeping in her car with her mother to try to make it as an actress. I mean, the identification she has with this character's longings to transform and to sort of reclaim. I mean, in a way it's like that quote, that beautiful quote. And again, again, I think it's earned by the material of, of FX tool. It's the box. If boxing has any magic, it's the magic of believing in a dream that only you can see. I may be misquoting it, but but it's about I, I'm getting the gist of it. Yeah, um, it always moves me to tears because not just for those dreams that we have for ourselves, but we know people like this, and we know the cost of those people not attaining them. Yeah, and we also know the cost a little of the people who do attain them. Yeah, yeah, th- that's the thing. I think another reason is one of this works is because you see her trying. Yeah you know, the cliche, God loves a trier, but audiences love a trier even more. Yeah. 
we if we if we go through the, the failings and the difficulties and you know one of the great things is that it's not a rags to riches story even before the tragic fight she hasn't made a, a huge she hasn't made a huge lot of money she's not living in a palace she doesn't have this massive entourage that surround rocky you know by part two right. so you know the, the victories are incremental and every time there's a victory we see a loss as well you know um you know when, when anthony mackie's character decides to take danger out in the uh, in the ring and uh, Morgan Freeman then has to step in to to uh, to protect this uh, very very vulnerable young man. And you know, I was with the movie when he steps in to protect him, but this is where the movie steps over into hokey yeah. jar nonsense. Is when he takes out Anthony Mackie with two punches and just you know, an old man. <laughs> a guy of his age and his speed and his strength just would not be able to do that. No. With a bare fist as well, he surely would have shattered his wrist. <laughs> no, it's, it's in I found, I mean, you tell me, but historically when films are, are patched together with kind of a series of vignettes and crazy glue to put it together and for it to sort of be more than the sum of its parts... Sometimes, like in some aspects, I see how that works here, where you have the million-dollar baby narrative is tremendous, but it needs more. It's it's just a short story. Yeah. It's not really enough for the whole thing. Yeah, and so you bring in the scrap character. You bring in him losing an eye, going for his dream, and then you bring in this other story of Frankie Dunn and the daughter that he can't connect with. And I do feel the power of Clint's storytelling and the economy of his storytelling of us beginning right in the central conflict of the letters coming back that he's sending every day. The priest doesn't believe him that he's writing to his daughter. We don't know why, um, what's happened. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of in its own way a bit of a MacGuffin. Um, we, know, we know he cares about this shoebox, but we don't know why. We don't know what's yeah. happened. Um, and then the surrogate daughter, the proxy to his daughter, comes in where he's completely emotionally unavailable because he's just scar tissue from yeah. his own daughter. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, as he says, he gives her. I think I think he gives her the piece of advice, and maybe maybe Scrap does. Always protect yourself. Yes. And in protecting themselves, they've actually put up such armor that they've cut themselves off, as you said, the tissue. They've, they've cut themselves off from everybody else. I think, Bryn, one of the reasons why it works, as you said, the, the glue that brings all these scrap pieces together is because within the first 10 minutes of the movie, the narration that Morgan Freeman is giving us is almost a little bit like, you know, I'm Irish, so I don't really use the term inside baseball. Yeah. We're, we're getting the secrets here. He says, you know, you do everything backwards in boxing. And you go, how can you do everything backwards? And he gives you just examples of, and you go, okay. We're familiar with the boxing ring. We're familiar with the gym. We're familiar with the gnarled old grizzly trainer. We've, we've seen that in Rocky. Sure. And then we see the, the, the young fighter coming in who has nothing. We've seen that in Rocky as well. So we get the cliche, but he they dress it with these moments of, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. So we, we it's it's not so much uh, we forgive the, the cliches. We accept them because we're getting, we sublimely, I think we're getting the cliches to get through to the truth of the story. Yeah. And these new truths that um, Morgan Freeman is going to deliver to us in the voiceover. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, obviously Morgan Freeman and Clint Eastwood are great friends. I think they've made three or four pictures together. Mm-hmm. And I think this was the second one. But, you know, casting Morgan Freeman with and the role of using the voiceover, immediately the audience would say, oh, this is the Shawshank Redemption. This is the voice to be heard in that. And then I remember he was also, I was just checking his credits, he was in um, Bruce Almighty where he played God. Right. Yeah. He plays here in a, in a strange way because he's not, <clears throat> well, not he's not playing God. He's, he's playing, um, cliche, Jiminy Cricket. He's the conscience. Mm, yeah, very true. But but then again, you know, as, as you were saying, um, FX O'Toole uh, short stories, I haven't read them, so I don't know, but I'd like to know whether how much of Paul Haggis changed these elements. Was Scrap in the stories, was he blind in one eye? Um, or is this a grace note that they put in? No, I I think there's there's verisimilitude with the characters. I think that the that line, it's the magic of risking everything for a dream that nobody sees but you. I mean, Haggis is looking for some great ornaments to hang on this tree that I, I think are more eloquent than tools, but it's drawing from the ethos right. and pathos from tool. Yes, but, and as yeah. you say, the, the fact that he's blinded one eye because of a box, because of a fight, we, we absolutely... You know, that's completely plausible. I mean, I've heard enough of the detached retina to know, you know, um, that losing the sight is, is, is very, very obvious. But it also it was also interesting because he's the narrator and he's supposed to be omnipotent and he sees everything, but he doesn't. And literally, he literally didn't see. Um, uh, sorry, I've forgotten the, the, the East German or the, the uh, German character, the, the fighter. Yeah. Who, the Dutch boxer, um, the bear, I think is her bear. name. Thank you. So sorry, I'll go back and say that. So you know, um, um, Morgan Freeman, Scrap doesn't see Blue coming. What right. she's going to do, and I think that's where the movie somehow convinces us to believe the completely implausible. There is no way that a person who is so um, corrupt in sports would be able to get into the ring a second time. I mean, the first thing we're introduced to her, she, she's boxing her. She she punches her opponent while she's on the canvas. Immediately, you would be banned from boxing forever, or at least it would be discussed for a move of that egregious a foul. Yeah. And yet we go with it because we need a villain. Yeah. yeah. Um, and <laughs> I mean, she's if if this were a movie about a male boxer, he would have a curly, twisty moustache. <laughs> you know, he's the pantomime villain. Um, but it's also the way that she, uh, Blue Bear is is introduced when she comes into the ring and she steps. She when she pulls up her hood and her hair is braided. It's almost like um, scales on a crocodile or a snake. So, you know, that, that's where we step out of the, the gritty realism and again into the romanticism and, and that. But I think just just talking just to, to extend that brain for to talk about the techniques you were saying, but. Clint's uh, economy as a storyteller. Yeah. And it's well known that, you know, he comes in ahead of schedule and under budget on all his films because he's so economical in the way he makes his movies. And also because he's got a, a you know, um, almost like a, a, a traveling circus of, of, sorry, not a traveling circus, because he's almost got like a family of filmmakers who come to make the movies with him. Right. Uh, but I think another thing that's really, really interesting in the film, and I think this is used as a metaphor for the, the, 
organizing structure of the morality of the film is the lighting. Oh, it's it's like Caravaggio painted it. Yes, I'm perfect. Because it's all side lighting. Yeah. The lighting comes in from the side. And I was looking at it going, wow, this is really it's it's not strange, but it's 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 deeply affecting. Yeah. And you know, all the interiors, as you said, it's Caravaggio type lighting. And you think that Caravaggio being such a spiritual painter and religious painter, it would be all lighting from above. And that would be the most obvious way to light a gym. You know, I mean, that's the obvious way we, we receive light is from the sky. But then if we're thinking about in terms of religion and deity and God and light from the sky, there is no God in the story. Mm. So the light can't come from above, so it comes from the side. And I was just thinking, you know, you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head there with Caravaggio. But I was just thinking in terms of practicality, the only time we have light coming in from the side, especially if you're indoors, is when the sun is going down. You know, it's sunset and there's no gold in this film. If you put gold in the lighting, it would have, you know, we would have said, oh, she's going to win the gold. She's going to win the belt. She's going to win all the millions. But it's, it's, a, it's a harsh white light coming in uh, from, you know, from a level window. And I think that was a really, really good decision because beyond the white, beyond that lighting, it's an incredibly dark film. Visually, it's cavernous, cavernous. Yeah. And they're thinking, you know, Clint, do you not have a light in your house, in your apartment? And does Maggie not, you know, the beautiful silhouettes, but it is so dark. And it just, I think Clint is renowned for going dark in his films. I think, you know, Escape from Alcatraz, when that came out, I remember, I didn't see it when it came out, obviously I was too young, but I remember reading incredibly dark film unforgiven is is a noir western but in terms of his canon have you seen bird the charlie parker biopic yeah uh, yeah, yeah. With that wonderful performance oh charlie parker yeah uh, forrest whitaker it's just, yeah oh I mean, a man built for the role <laughs> um but uh that's an incredibly visually dark film as well i mean to the point that it's it's not black it's, it's cavernous yes it's ink i know it, if you touch the screen you know, you'd be washing your hands for weeks. Yeah. No, it's it's beyond that. So um, I think that was part of the reason why the film works is because it's not just the way they, the characters tell their stories, but the way Clint is able to frame and light, compose it with his director of photography, Jack N. Green, who worked many times with Clint. Huh. And, you know, I, I just think that articulation is really, really good because if we think about other uh, other great boxing pictures, um, people say immediately they're going to mention Raging Bull and Shot in Black and White. But for me, um, one of the great boxing pictures, one of the greatest boxing pictures, pictures ever made and the most beautifully lit was Fat City. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that enjoys the cinematography of Conrad Hall, who had won his first Academy Award for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And if you think about the beautiful, drenching golden sunlight and then Fat City, it was all natural light. I mean, he was only using practicals as well. And and that, I think, is a is a superbly honest film as well. Perhaps even more moving than Million Dollar Baby, because it's so honest. And it gets nowhere near, um, uh, you know, the, the notion of anybody carrying a, um, a belt of, this is my championship belt. Nobody ever gets anywhere near that in Fat City. And so I think, coming back to it, I think the reason why the film works is because it's, it feels real. It, it's plausible. And that's the mixture between romanticism and reality. You know? And I, I wonder also, I mean, another aspect of I think what you're talking about is the 
fantastic turn of the third act. Yeah. Where Clint is again forced to go against his 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 faith. Mm. Uh, he is a man living in sin. And what is he presented with? A choice where it's only sin. Yeah. I, I know I'm in sin to allow her to live, but is it a worse sin to take her life? Mm. There's no good decision. It's it's a Sophie's choice in, in a way for him. Yeah, it is. And the only thing that I'd wish for in the movie is that if it, if they had taken out the story that Maggie gives Frankie in advance is to foreshadow the story of the dog. And yeah. put dog and I, even when i saw the movie the first time and i went in i was at the press preview and this was literally two weeks after i think it had opened in the states and this is in the early days of the internet so nothing had proliferated across across the atlantic so i didn't know the third act turn that was going to come in but mm-hmm. even then i just said oh someone's going to have a bit of a problem here later this is you know you can even tell the timing of the of the, the of that story in, in within the, the structure of the script, we're we're long enough established into the, the characters, their backstory, and we're long enough into the plot. And then when this story comes up out of nowhere, you say either this is more backstory or this is foreshadowing. And I just think today, if you just cut that out, because that would completely blindside the audience, and it means also that she has the the uh, he's actually been given the forgiveness in advance from her. Yeah. Textualize it. And if you take that out, it means that he has to claw through the dirt even harder to to grapple with this with this dilemma. Yeah. And, but she can, you know, can she talk, can she say it to him? Because she certainly couldn't deliver that speech late in, in the third act. To, because that'd be too too obvious. Well, and, and on and on top of it, Stephen, I mean, yes, there's absurdity in the final fight, there are rounds in it where I think I timed one of them where it was 15 seconds for the second round. Pressure, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's just no, no modicum of verisimilitude for yeah. this real time. Um, but, but where it does earn the verisimilitude and take us to all the people we know who've striven against all odds for a better life is her as a waitress yeah. taking the food home. Oh, it's oh, for yeah. my dog. Yeah. Again, the dog being referenced, yeah. um, paying for a speed bag because Clint won't allow her to have it with spare change, pennies and nickels and dimes. Yeah. Um, the indignity of that, the indignity mm. of, of how, not that there's indignity in the way she worked to earn the money, but regarded by others, regarded by others that she's dismissed summarily by Clint for being a woman like and her. then for being too old. Yeah. for possibly being too stupid for the time she spent in boxing to have learned how to do the basics. Yeah. Um, she has this wonderful line. Again, I'm struck by uh, it's it's really hard for me to watch her performance looking at Clint without me immediately feeling a lot of emotion. Sure. Just the eye contact between the two of them. Right. Because stakes are there. And when she says, I'm 32, Mr. Dunn. And I'm here celebrating the fact that I spent another year scraping dishes and waitressing, which is what I've been doing since 13. And according to you, I'll be 37 before I can even throw a decent punch. Which after working this feedback for a punch, nowhere I now realize maybe God's simple truth. Other truth is, my brother's in prison. My sister cheats on welfare by pretending one of her babies is still alive. My dad is dead, and my mama weighs 312 pounds. If I was thinking straight, I'd 
go back home, find a used trailer, buy a deep fryer and some Oreos. Problem is, this is the only thing I ever felt good doing. If I'm too old for this, then I got nothing. Yeah. And what I find fascinating, again, about the mechanics of this script that I think credit both to Haggis and to Clint, Clint for delivering these moments, is Clint is terrified of losing another daughter. Yes. That's his biggest fear in the world, and his biggest need is to reclaim his daughter. And here she is, and she's the daughter that probably he's dedicated his life to this. He's always been waiting for a champion. We begin the story with him losing another champion by, quote, protecting him. Yeah. Protecting him from a champion. So he's afraid to commit. He's afraid to cross that that threshold right. um, to be all in because that's the person he is. He's loyal to Scrap. He yep. risks his life to protect this guy. He can't do it, especially for somebody who reminds him of his daughter, but she gives him no choice. And when he does, I'll work with you a little bit. And then basically presupposing that like all people in his life, she's going to abandon him. He abandons her first. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was good. And we, you know, it's going to be a strange analogy here. But the good thing is, as you pointed out, the um, Clint's loyalty to her comes in increments. Yes. It's earned. And it's strange. It just suddenly struck me that something similar happened in Schindler's list. Is that Schindler is really reticent. He's reluctant. He won't. He won't. There's a little bit. He gives a little bit. He feels a little bit better about himself. He sort of helps, and then he helps a little bit more. And all of a sudden, he realizes, oh, my God, I'm nothing without without this project that I'm going to create. Uh. And that only works for the audience if you see the increments. Back in the night in classical Hollywood cinema from the 30s through the late 50s, it would have been only one moment. Uh. All you needed for what was for one moment for Pat O'Brien or Humphrey Bogart. And that only happens, only I think in Casablanca, it only needs one moment for Clint, sorry, not Clint, for Humphrey Bogart to, to switch over. It's when the young young Bulgarian couple come in and he puts all them. he tells them how to win on the roulette table. And from then in, you just know he's in. But yeah. you can see the back and forth. And that's much more, uh, much more enjoyable for an audience now because we've, we've been familiar with these set of cliches and we're saying, bring, bring us some new cliches. And this is the formation of the new cliche where we see the, the struggle within the character. And, you know, I think that... Um, the the thing, as you said, losing his daughter. The the film has structured is structured around a series of repetitions. Yes. That he loses his daughter, he's lost her, he's going to lose Maggie. Um, he 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 brings Maggie in just as he lost as he lost Big Willie, right? Um, so there you know, and then the the savage beatings that people get, you know, scrap lost an eye, and then dangerous pommels in the in the in the ring by Anthony Mackie's character. So it's a series of, of repetitions. And so it's it's like for me there's really only been two or three true tragedies been created by Hollywood cinema. Chinatown being one, which is a story of repetition where Jake worked in Chinatown years before and the girl he tried to make sure that he was protecting ended up being hurt even more. And then the Godfather part two, where Michael tries to resist, but he actually becomes darker than his father. Yes. You know, and uh, I always, I don't rail, but I, I roll my eyes when people say, oh, that the, the movie is structured around Michael's descent against 
Vito's rise to power and said, no, he doesn't. Vito, the movie doesn't depict Vito rising to power. Vito descends into hell. Huh. So the second he's given that opportunity, you know, Clemenza, who's living across the, the, the divide in the tenements, he, he knocks in the wind, he throws in the guns. The second he lowers the guns into the bath and he decides to hold on to them and then to, to go into business with Clemenza, that's where he starts to lose. And he goes down into hell. And Michael is trying to claw his way out, but he it's just too dark and too slippery a pit. And I think Million Dollar Baby elevates itself into the realm of tragedy because it has those repetitions running through it where the past just repeats itself no matter how hard you try. It's going to reshape itself in a new form just to mock you. And that's that's the terrible thing is, you know, uh, where you know it's coming, <laughs> you fight against it, and fate just smirks, you know. Yeah. And I, I think that's what that's what elevate that's what stops it being just a boxing picture. I think you're absolutely right, and I just think that also it adds to the stakes of the choices and how fate punishes them for personal growth, in yeah. the sense of uh, when Maggie begins to ascend. Frank goes back to his default self-protection of handing her off to a manager. Yeah. Then watching her get beaten because she's put above her head, he yeah. gradually goes from the darkness to her side. The referee looks at her and says, "Is that what are you doing here? Like, is this your fighter? Yeah. You see the look on her face, and what it's really saying is, oh, will you finally cross over and accept being who I know you, I need you to be. Yeah, and, yeah. and he says, yes, you're my fighter. But there's one step further, which is after he went, she wins the fight, her first fight with Clint, they go to the, the dressing room and you're waiting to see, is this going to be raised that he abandoned her, which is her biggest fear. Yes. Yeah. Are you going to leave me again, Frankie? Mm. He's in the complete darkness. Yeah. Takes one step into the light and says never. Yes. Yeah, and that's yeah. all that's mentioned of it. And I thought the shorthand of it works. It's incredible. And because these two the performances allow you to not need what more is there to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, in classical Hollywood narrative from the thirties, you would have had a big speech, two or three pages. Right. Spelling right. strengths, you know, and the big glossy close up and Talking about music, that, that's another strength in the story is it's a minimalist score, you know, Lenny Niehaus. Uh, I understand that um, they have a working relationship that goes back, I think, or French, at least, that goes back to the time that they're both in the army. They, they both met when they were um, uh, in service. And um, Niehaus comes from a very, very musical family. And he was, I think, uh, a jazz saxophonist. And obviously, you know, jazz been very, very close to Clint Hart for a very long time. But the, the score is so restrained, right? And I was checking it, Brent. The first music cue comes after 17 minutes, a long time in, in Hollywood picture without the music. And it's the moment that um, Morgan Freeman gives her um, the, the speed bag or he gives her some sort of information. And for me, I thought the way the music comes in, I went, that's the key to the story. It, the story is the search for kindness and clemency. Come, wow. Of sure, companionship, yes. But how do you how do you how do you create a friend? How do you find a friend through kindness? And you know, we've got this very very interesting dynamic in the story where it's about protect yourself 
and don't let your guard down and uh, tough ain't enough. And you cut yourself off from people. And also then by cutting yourself off, you cut yourself off because you don't trust them. And trust is part of friendship. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a nice, it, I wouldn't call it a little band. It's like a, a little orchestra of emotions and uh, ideals that come together to make the movie really, really work on, on a deep, a profoundly emotional level. But for me, I think the reason why it, it's believable is because it's about kindness. The first music cue that we get is when Morgan Freeman is kind to, to Maggie. And that kindness then, it bleeds across the picture. But because it didn't directly come from Clint, firstly, we, he's observing. Uh, he says, where'd you get the bag from? That looks like my bag. Give he's me back annoyed. my bag. He's annoyed. He presents it. And I think that that complexity, where it's not direct, where we see an obstacle first, uh, makes the third act really, really plausible. And as you said, the connection between losing his daughter and which, and then, no, he, as you said, the Sophie's choice, no matter what he does, it's the wrong one. Yeah. Um, and, and he's so lovable. Like for somebody who's now so incredibly polarizing after lecturing a chair against <laughs> a problem, um, I'm just struck by God, like this guy's politics on so many levels, I find alienating the way he speaks out. But as a performer, yeah. he's spellbinding. He's so lovable. You, no matter how harsh he is with her, you know, he's covering his wounds and his pain. You can feel it. Uh, you know, when she looks at him, she yeah. sees that loving father figure yeah. and and I mean, another element of this I wanted to ask you about is that line where you think it's the magic of risking everything for a dream only you can see. But after you get the dream, Maggie gets it. Maggie says at the end that dying at that point, or I think Scrap consoles um, Clint to say she she got what she was going after, just like I did. I'm okay losing an eye because I got what I was chasing. And nobody can take it away from me that I went for my dream. I'm not somebody who will die that never strove to go yeah. after what I knew I believed in. And similarly, Clint is striving to go after what he believes in, too, with this girl reclaiming a daughter he loves. Yeah. But what I find interesting that Clint seems to recognize is after those dreams are attained briefly, it's an effervescent dream. Yeah. It reminded me a bit of that Faust thing, linger yet a while thou art so fair. Is, <laughs> yeah. is you're not removed from the risk. The risk remains and the risk comes for these people. They're all punished for what they go after in a way. They, that's a great phrasing of the risk comes from them. It's almost like the risk isn't the reward. The risk is sort of it's sort of um, a metaphysical entity that comes to punish or teach lessons or to yeah. mock. You know, that's a really the the risk comes from them. That was really good. But also, it just you know, on a just a minor little side note, is the idea as you're talking about reclaiming the daughter, is that that is a recurring motif in a number. It happens. I think that happens in at least three Clint Eastwood movies. Um, his relationship with his daughter, he's estranged from his daughter, um, Laura Linney, in Absolute Power. Yeah. And then there's the much warmer relationship that he has with Amy Adams in um, uh, Trouble with the Curve. Yeah. You know, and then um, what I also find interesting, another motif for Clint, is that he essentially goes on the run. 
in this film. Like he's going to hide from God. It's almost like Prometheus. Huh. Whatever Greek God, Greek Greek character you want, who's just on the run from the Lord or from Zeus or whichever whichever um, pantheon you want to agree with. But um, it's a little bit like Unforgiven, where he's cast out then at the end of the movie. Outlaw, Outlaw Josie Wales, a similar thing, but that's a motif within the Western, yeah. uh, which, which we see as early as Stagecoach. But I think that the ending is really, really good because not only has Clint lost his daughter Katie and he's lost Maggie, in, an actual, in a way he's lost himself. Yeah. But then again, I suppose if we were to be really dig down deep into the existential weight of it, we'd say we ha- he hadn't lost himself. In actual fact, he, saw, he found himself in this incredible darkness, but he has proven himself to be a father to this young woman. He, he took her as far as he could for the dream that she wanted to achieve. And she was happy with that. And then he, he closed it for her, which is incredibly difficult. I mean, heaven forbid that anybody would have to be to face that dilemma as a parent. But that's what he has to do, and he has to give her what she wants, which is to die. Jesus, <laughs> Bergman couldn't put, <laughs> couldn't come up with a, with no. a yeah, at the end of those films. And, and I would also argue that part of the genius of this script is when we see that Clint is, when he says, "I will never leave you again," never. When asked, "Are you with me?" Mm. He honors that to the end. Yeah. That yeah. But when there is one more opportunity for Maggie to leave Clint because she's not quite getting that championship moment, it's he, kind of. He, he so you see then Morgan Freeman try to help both parties yeah. through allowing her an opportunity to reveal her true character in the dark of Clint. Right. It's not happening in front of Clint, it's who is this person? where she has total agency to behave how she would like. Her response is, I see you following me to this manager promoter guy. Um, you don't need to stop. You need to stop pretending to do that. I'm not ever leaving this man. It's the rule. Always protect yourself. People never take their own advice. If she was going to leave, Frankie, better she did it to him then. Mickey Mac, I'm Maggie Fitzgerald. I hear you're a, a real good manager doing uh, good things for Big Willie. But I thought you should know I ain't never leaving Mr. Dunn. So you don't need to make any more excuses to bump into me. So we know that. We're privy to that information. Clint isn't. He still sure. has to operate on faith. But we know who she is in the dark, that there's mutual, total loyalty. Sure. Yeah, I thought that was a good scene. And again, just this is one of the minor flaws in the story that I found. It was that um, the subtext of the scene was, as you said, that she's never going to leave. She's made a commitment to to, to Clint, but she has to be tested in, in another arena. And um, in the voiceover, as she, the shot when she's walking out the door of the diner, and so they, they link on a little bit longer. They, they gave it extra time because Morgan Freeman then has to deliver the line. Maggie always did like taking them out in the first round. I thought, don't tell me what I was emotionally, I knew. And yeah. I think occasionally the film sort of, they were a little bit suspicious of or fearful of the, the strength of their own subtext. They, they had to ladle it on. Good you point. Know, 
there's a scene where they're coming home. I think this is when they're coming home after Maggie has gone to uh, give her mother the house. And they're driving home and then she says, oh, let's step, o- step over this diner or at, at a gas station. And Clint, no, she gives him the story about her father, you know, her fa- how affection she still feels for her father. And then they step over the gas station and he's wiping the windscreen. I thought, clarity, it's just too, you know, it's just too much on the nose. And his daughter is in the car next to him that's watched Hillary. I, I thought that was nice. I didn't realize that was the first time I saw the movie, but you know that's a nice there. But I just thought it's almost playing the squeegee type character, you know, cleaning yeah. the screen. And occasionally it 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 shows a strange uh, insecurity with their with their own subtext because rest of the film really really works. Yeah. And they're such consummate storytellers and and experienced professionals. You would have, you would have thought that at some point they would have said, no, we we don't need that line. Just let it let that shot linger of Maggie walking at the door, and we would go. She she knocked him out. She knocked him out. Do you know what I mean? Let let us play it for ourselves. You know. So I think I mean I think the movie has great strengths, but I think it's a little bit um, uh, visually rich, but in terms of its depth, it's a little bit flat. By which I'm trying to say, I'm talking about the extras and the crowd scenes. They didn't yeah, convince yeah. at all. You know, the Makushla thing and the crowd in London. and doesn't work. And there's a, I think also the straw man component to Maggie's family. They're just the most evil, venal people imaginable. Like, Yeah. Boo his film. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, you know, one of the, th- the strengths of, I think, a Rocky is we care about his relationship with with Adrian and Adrian's brother and that they're losers too. There's a community. There's a community. And so's the guy at the gym who's never had his, you know, he wants one last opportunity. We yeah. care about the stakes of all those people with Maggie. She's just, it's like the death star of that family. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, no, that's no boxing ring. That's a death star. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. And, and I mean, another component in terms of realism with boxing is female boxing. Even you have now the greatest female boxer ever, arguably, it's her or, or Ali's daughter, Clarissa Shields, a two-time Olympic champion from Flint, Michigan. This great kind of story, I mean, incredible story. But one of the issues with female boxing is that there's just not knockouts. Whereas Maggie is is sort of early career Mike Tyson in knocking out everybody. It doesn't happen in female boxing. There's not an example of that. So I think for people who know nothing about boxing, their response is, you know, if if you learn and you have a good trainer, you can just go out and do this. It just doesn't happen that way, even in male boxing. But in female boxing, it's totally unprecedented. Yeah, Um, yeah. Again, as I said, it's like the, the audience, our understanding of what a great boxer is, is the ability to knock someone out. <clears throat> and that, that's, you know, and it's not about defense and rope-a-dope and footwork and stamina and whatever. And yeah, so they just went for the the, the, the easy route to say, look, she's so good, she can knock someone out. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. and that, that much I've learned from watching uh, Katie Taylor, you know, uh, Our Lady, just, and just... Um, but the struggle that you see in that in the in the in her in her bouts, I mean, I, I I find them incredibly hard to watch. I'm not a huge fan of boxing anyway, but because yeah. the Irish connection, I tune in to watch once in a while. And 
God Almighty, it's hard. <laughs> it's sort of hard to watch. I think it's harder to watch a lot. Like I watched Katie Taylor fight in New York, I believe in Madison Square Garden a year ago. She had a brutal contest where I thought she narrowly lost, but I think there was a fighter. Yeah, right. And right. I, I, I thought she had a narrow loss. And I'm a huge fan of Katie Taylor. I, I spent a little time in Ireland cover, covering uh, some of the Cuban boxers that I, I wrote about. Um, I've never seen more, for, like, the intensity of fans in Ireland is more intense than anywhere I've seen in my life. Uh, just incredible passion. And Katie Taylor, as with English fans, they come over to New York to support yeah. their yeah fighter in huge numbers but the fact that these fights go on and it's these battles of attrition mm. adds to the drama of, yeah. and the, the kind of tragedy in a way that's not in any way reflected in million dollar baby where it's yeah. just a demolition zone yeah i mean it reminds me of um <clears throat> the wonderful documentary about the the rumble in the jungle yeah when we were kings that, that went to 15 and then it becomes mythological as opposed to this lightning strike in the first round, this you know this kid who's got the golden or what's the phrase in boxing? Is it do you have a golden arm, or a golden glove, or whatever it is to be the, the great boxer? It, it, or is it in baseball? You know, you, anybody who can hit a homer, it, yeah. it's genius. And it's it's not like that. You got to go the nine innings. You got to go all the way down. But coming back Brent, to what you're saying about the, uh, the Death Star <laughs> of Maggie's family. And we've drawn by comparison Rocky. And I don't know how much of a cultural thing this is, but the Italian family as depicted by um, Hollywood cinema is really, really tight. You know, um, Polish families, the same thing. Immigrant families, absolutely. The community is really, really rich and and, and so uh, closely woven. But with... um, White working class families, you don't see it that much mm. unless it's specified that they're Irish <laughs> or Polish. Yeah. And Maggie, Maggie's background doesn't have that ethnic identity. It has just an economic identity, Yeah. which is we have nothing here. We are on the lowest, we're below the lowest rung on the economic, on the economic ladder. And so maybe that's why they're allowed. The movie allows them to be so damn venal. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, Enhance her too. It's a cheap trick to her more. It it her. Yeah, yeah. It's like um, it's the wag the dog trick. Sure. You know, um, or or save the dog, uh, trick for for screenwriters, and the the villain will always kick the dog. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, and so why don't we just finish up with the last act? Yeah. And, and then we can try to go through some of these categories and see how that plays with the film. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the huge turn in this, and I, I have to admit, the, the weaker, more tender parts of me subscribe to it is I love the first two thirds of this film. It makes me feel good, emotional, happy, and inspired. And then, you know, I just don't want to delve into euthanasia. And it's not because I'm conflicted on the matter, you know, anymore. I don't see it with people any different than I do with pets. 
you know, I don't want anything to be in pain. And if something wants to be relieved of pain, I don't have any moral quandary about it. But I don't want to watch Clint euthanize her or her to bite her tongue to try to do it herself. And it's hard. It's really hard to watch. Oh, it is. No, I mean, it's easy. To, it's not easy. But the first time you're watching it, you're going with the journey. You're on the train. You're on the boat. You're going to go all the way to the destination. But when you go to watch the second time, knowing what's going to happen. I mean, when I was watching it the other night, I paused it. The second she hit the, 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 um, the stool. Oh. I got to stop this. I got to galvanize myself for what's going to come. You know, uh, I mean, I very, very rarely does a movie t- take such a sharp turn. Yeah. You know. Um, although I, 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 I suggest that it sort of gives a little bit of a hint beforehand, but no, I didn't think that was going to happen at all. I, you know, and I, I thought what's really, really good about it was um, when, Spark, uh, when Scrap says to her, <clears throat> um, bring, uh, he says, bring back the, bring back the, uh, the, the, the belt. Yeah. Nothing. Is that what he says? Does he say nothing? Or yeah, bring just, back the belt or don't come back or something. That's it. And that, we find that in ancient Sparta. Huh. When, when in Plutarch, when he wrote, come back with your shield or on it. That's what it is. I mean, he doesn't, oh. he doesn't mean it that way. <clears throat> it's an affectionate thing. But that's really what happens is she doesn't, she doesn't come back with the shield and she's on it, which I and, thought was a, and, and Stephen, the the line, I mean, it's such a weird thing to insert of how do you want to travel there? Clint asks her. Plane or? Plane there and drive back. And driving back is the ambulance back. Yeah. She, I, you know, I, wow. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't click that. That's good. I didn't realize that. <laughs> I didn't realize that. What a horrible joke where it's like a joke at the end. It's used as a bit of a punchline. It's ominous. I, I mean, yeah, I'm only thinking the first time he says it to her when they're going. Right. And he's what a strange you know, driving back, whatever. Yeah. But as he said, it's the ambulance back. Yeah. yeah. It is. It's incredibly hard because the, the whole thing, it's almost like um, the, the, everything you watched before has been abandoned. Yes. You know, um, and the, the, the quandary and the relationship is just com- completely realigned. And as I said to you, the, the brokenness of the characters. Yeah. It is, is all laid bare. And again, one of the reasons why it works is because it's it's so far, it is so bereft of music. Yeah, so minimalist. To the point that you hear Maggie, uh, and yeah. that becomes the rhythm, and that becomes the literally the oxygen of the scene. It's the way we're fed with it. And it's almost like a countdown, you know? I'm always when I when I saw the movie the fir- for the first time, uh, I couldn't help but think of that brilliant movie, The Verdict, with Paul Newman. Sure. Where he himself, as a lawyer, is looking for a redemption, and he's defending this young lady who's been rendered comatose because of the neglect of the uh, the medical profession, and he goes in to take a photograph of her to to use in the uh, for the for the the legal case he's he's building, and he comes in with a uh, with a Polaroid camera, and he takes a photograph, and he puts takes photographs and puts them down the bed and then the picture emerges and that's when he's literally awakened to yeah. what he's supposed to be doing he sees her and you literally you know you 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 you're starting to breathe the way maggie breathes yeah. so that's the that's the emotional motion of the story which i thought was makes it much more difficult to watch because if they put music in which is what they would have done in the 50s and 60s 
it would have made it so easy to be treacled that you wouldn't be able to swim through it. And you, you move through this at your own uh, peril. Well, and I, I might even push back a little further to say, you know, Spielberg would have added music to all of this. Everything yeah. would have been underlined and... Um, yeah. very heavily punctuated. Whereas I see parallels a little bit with this third act and a bit of uh, Life is Beautiful with that, that ending because, boy, you have to earn him seeing the tank and recognizing that the whole thing was a game, that his dad was telling him the truth the entire time. Yeah. And that the adult voice is actually looking back as the son to right. recognize it was a lie, but the lie was for me that my father gave to me. Yeah. Even even in the father's last moment where the, there's eye contact with the son mm. and the wink and the dancing as he's marching off to his desk. Yeah. Oh, just shatters the heart. You right. Know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can, we can all imagine, if we're lucky, our father is wanting to preserve that last moment for us. It kills me. But I... I feel as though in this film with with the coda that there's this bow wrapping it up with scrap that it's actually we're speaking not to the audience, but no. to one person who's yeah. the daughter, Katie, that we, we never meet. We never know her backstory. Yeah. And somehow that's supposed to redeem all of the emotional carnage of this incredibly brutal, sad, tragic possibly redemptive third act. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I would counter that a little bit, Brian, by saying that if, if, we're, to, if we're to agree that um, Scrap's character is, um, is the conscience, mm -hmm. it means that, um, and he lives in the gym, and we barely see Scrap outside of the gym. I think you know where I'm going to go with this, is that he is, um, he is Clint's conscience. And so Clint, he's not writing the letter to his daughter, to Clint's daughter. Clint is writing the letter. And it's it's no longer a letter. It's a soliloquy. It's almost a eulogy. This is my life. This is what I've tried. I'm done. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And again, there's no, there's no one single way of interpreting that. And I think that's one of the reasons why the film works, because it has that richness where you can interpret it from different vantage points. And bits of it still hold up. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Some things hold up. Well, let's let's give a whirl of these categories. We began this. Um, would this film have worked better from a different character's perspective? I think you addressed that with with some of the casting choices that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a different perspective; it's a different cast. I think the balance was was pretty pretty perfect in yeah. terms of. Scrap to Clint to to Hillary Swank's perspective, uh, it it toggled a little bit, but I thought beautifully to add richness to the story. Yeah, 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 it did, it did. No, I mean, there's, I think that it's not the, I know Scrap is the supporting character, but it's the peripheral characters who seem occasionally a little bit superfluous. Yeah, but the, it's almost like, um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a three hander, yeah. and they pass the bat on on each time, and you know, I I suppose. When I, I doubt that Clint is this type of director who 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 indulges in this conversation with his cast, but I'm sure um, <clears throat> they all understood. <clears throat> excuse me, that, that they all understood that um, it's almost like one of them is stepping into the ring and the other one's coaching and the other one's 
um, the, the, the cut man. And then Clint then steps into the ring because it's his scene. He's got to fight it out. And, and Morgan Freeman is his cut man. So they have, it's almost like, I wouldn't call it a dance, but they're definitely in motion with each other. And yeah. Compliment very well, yeah. And I think also, I mean, one thing we haven't touched on is the dynamic between the best friends of Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman. To me, it's one of my favorite friendships since like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with Newman and Redford. They are magical together as friends. Funny, yeah. warm, loving, uh, kind of gruff, but it's it's a wonderful old man relationship. Absolutely. No, and their 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 tone is perfect. They never miss the tone of the story. <clears throat> so it's gruff and they'll never tell you that I love you by but by talking to you about your socks, I'm really caring for your welfare. <laughs> and and I also think that the vignette of danger, you know, being abandoned and dropped in the gym and kind of gratuitously picked on, it's almost suggested that he has Down syndrome or some kind of mental illness. He's autistic perhaps. It's not clear. Um, I don't really know what that added to the film beyond cutting away and us pondering what had been done with Maggie or Scrap or, or Clint's character. Um, but the stakes of danger was just this is a goofy, silly guy who's a victim unfairly, which I guess maybe is a bit of a proxy to what happens to, to Swank's character. But, but it, to me, it seemed a little filler-ish. Yes, but I'm just reminded of what you said about FX O'Toole when he wrote about um, it's the ambition, it's the dreams only you can see. True. Dan danger sees something that we know is not there. <laughs> right. God love it, you know. But it also, it's, it's when, when uh, Scrap goes in to protect him, he says, always protect yourself. Yeah. Always protect, and he's not. He's, he's, and so, you know, um, it means that it gives, this, it, the story's then giving license for Clint to protect Maggie. When he's saying, I don't, it's almost like, it's almost like Humphrey Bogart says in Casablanca, I stick my neck out for no one. Yep. And the next scene, he's doing it for, he's doing it for Victor oh, and Elsie, you know. Um, so we would have either Pauline or Roger Ebert's Corner. Again, I began with, Ebert called it a masterpiece in the year's best film. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think either of us are arguing that there's some great ingredients here. Oh, yeah. Um, we have a, we used to have a sports journalist in Ireland, a guy called Eamon Dunphy, and he began as a professional footballer. He never made it to the to the top ranks at all. He played in a in a small team in a lower division, uh, but he was a very good journalist for a while. And um, while the Irish football team suddenly started uh, uh, playing in the World Cup for the very very first time, and the entire nation was delighted, and we travelled to the United States in 1994 to see Ireland play in in Florida in the heat of Florida. And, in New York, we beat New York. We beat Italy one nil in the opening our opening game. Italy were one of the favourites. Italy actually went, got the final in the end. In 1990, we went to Italy for our very very first time in the World Cup, and the country was in a state of absolutely euphoric bliss. And no matter what the team did, it was perfect. Even if we lost, it was through to some injustice or some fate mm. of God that conspired against us. And Eamon Dunphy had the had the gumption to say, "We're not a great team. We're mm. a good team." but we're not great. And we were apoplectic with anger that he would dare say this truth. And so I would say that, um, so, you know, in Ireland, if anyone ever says it's good, it's not great. We always, we can hear what Eamon Dunphy saying. So I'd say Million Dollar Baby is a good movie. It has greatness in it, but it's a, it's not a great film. Um, and I'm, I'm actually quoting from uh, Pauline Kale when she, she, was, she said that when she was talking with The Deer Hunter. She says the movie has greatness in it. 
but it's not a great movie. I think that I think there's a lot of truth to that because there's some silly moments in this film where it's, as they say, the the cliche family of Maggie. That's a that's a hack mm. move to put that in, but it earns a lot of other stuff. Oh with, sure, yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, most iconic moment of the film for you? Ah, oh, God. Um, I would, not necessarily a moment, but I would just go for the way that they frame Hilary Swank's face when she's spotting at Boss. Yes, Boss. It's such a big, toothy grin. But it's it's not like sort of a Fifth Avenue beautiful model, Madison Avenue model grin. It's, you know, just very moving. Yeah. And you? Um, I guess it would be the two. It would be Clint walking from the darkness into the light to say, I'll never leave you. Um, I think for most people, and, and definitely if I think about, do I want to watch this film tonight? It's uh, the first image I get, unfortunately, is her face being crushed on the stool as she's falling because I know it's there. You know, it's okay. It's not like waiting for Jaws, where it's a, a delicious yeah. kind of wait. It's a terror of uh, same way with Life Is Beautiful. Right. It's all the beauty of this family that I adore. The the prologue yeah. of how they come together and the sun and and the magic of all that. Not just am I waiting for the Holocaust, but I'm waiting for that son have to hear the gunshot of his dad dying, and then just the instrumentation. Right. Of, yeah. Uh, yes, that's true. It's interesting you mentioned that because when, when you said about Maggie falling on the stool, I immediately thought of the moment that um, Faye Dunaway falls out of the car in Chinatown. Yeah. Her eyes shot out. And that's an image I do not want to see, but that it's unforgettable. And it, it, you cannot think about Chinatown without thinking of that. There's other yeah. beautiful moments in it, but yeah. The, yeah, it's, yeah I, I think one of the reasons why I chose her smiling is because I don't want to think about her falling. <laughs> it's just too yeah. tough. Too tough. Yeah. Um, most memorable quote for you in this film? Uh, tough ain't enough. Tough ain't enough. I don't train girls. Maybe you should. People see me fat saying I'm pretty tough. Girly, tough ain't enough. Um, but again, you see, again, you see, the thing is, sorry to cut you across, Bryn, but it's yeah. the discovery. It's oh yeah, and it's 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 Clint's dry throat of you know two thousand years of the or, or fifty sorry fifty years of working in in the in, in you know in the plains as a as a cowboy. You can hear tough ain't enough, and yeah. it's it's his line. <laughs> He's good. You know? <laughs> I think you're right. Um, the sentimentalist in me is just endlessly moved by. Um, Morgan Freeman slash God, um, risking everything for a dream nobody can see but you. It, it's hard for me not to think about uh, everybody I know that was really plugging away. I definitely know what it's like to write a million words for 10 years and not sell a single one. And, yeah. and I, I think the beauty of that line is it means different things at different ages in our lives. Yes, that, that too. And, and and it means a lot to me just about her, about this character. Right. I, I love this woman in an underappreciated sport, in a life where she's dismissed as being useless. Mm, um, yes. Yeah. That she's still holding on to something to give her life meaning. And everybody around her, even at this gym, is shitting on it. But mm. she's 
she, in the end, that light that she's holding on to wins them over. Right. It's, it's irresistible. And she earns that with, a, you know, a performance that I think absolutely holds up as yeah. uh, tremendous. That, that's another thing, because I was watching it last week. I watched Aliens. Mm. Strange analogy. But <laughs> we only tend to notice the physicality of someone's uh, performance when it's in sport. Uh, yeah. And of course, Hilary Swank went through an enormous amount of hours of training in the in the gym to make it real. And we just we tend to forget that when you're actually in in the ring fighting, you sorry, you're not fighting. You're that's performance, and you're acting, and that's part of the physicality. It's just like Sigourney Weaver. I mean, I think Sigourney Weaver's performance in Aliens is one of the greatest ever. Yeah, it's brilliant. Physical. And the thing is, it's not just bang 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 pulling the triggers. It's the look on her face. That she says, "I hate guns, but I'm doing this to protect this little this little girl." And just hits me right here. Yeah. You know? And Hilary Swank's performance is one of the greatest because not be, not like De Niro when we say De Niro put on the on this weight. It's just the sheer physicality of acting. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and I think also just that you know what she did in Girl Boys Don't Cry. Which yeah. also has the added irony, if I recall correctly, that that was a film that was NC-17, not because of the brutal rape and murder of this of yeah. this man, yeah, but because, because he had an orgasm or gave an orgasm to Chloe Sevigny. That cheapers, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. To the censors. I know that. Yeah, it warped. Female, female pleasure. I know. Tremendously yeah. offensive. Okay to brutally gang rape and murder. That's right. Well, I remember David David Cronenberg. He says it's it's okay to hack off a breast in a movie, but to kiss it, you can't show, you can't do that. You know. It's, it's interesting. Just as a minor point, uh, I was talking to I was at uh, I was out a while ago with friends. Uh, it was one of these small social gatherings that we had under lockdown or in, in COVID, and um, they're talking about the great drugs of the 20th century. Mm. And I hate to be a smartass, and I'm not trying to build myself up to be the, smart, the smartest guy in the room. But I said that the most important drug of the 20th, 20th century is the pill. Forget your amphetamines and your cocaine. Screw that, man. That's only a day. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is so. Yeah, I've forgotten that, that, <laughs> that was the controversy about Boys Don't Cry, which is a really fantastic piece of work. Brilliant. You know, so far ahead. I mean, it's still. I haven't seen it in a while, but I can. I can imagine it's still fresh today well her performance is breathtaking i mean as well i mean that th this girl was on 90210 and karate kid part four to, to these kind of perform when you give her material what she can do with it and i mean it seems like she's sort of fallen off after million dollar baby she just hasn't had those yeah commiserate with this level of um complexity and layers well it, it, it says two things to me it, it shows that there's a whole ocean of phenomenally talented, uh, talented actors and actresses out there whose talent we will never see because they give them mediocre material i'm not saying the writers aren't talented i'm simply saying it's it's being ring fenced by very very insecure overcautious executives yeah you say and then secondly because and so hillary swank breaks through that and then she's ring fenced as that type of character and so we can't see her in anything else because the executives, the studios are too cautious, thinking the audience won't buy her as anything else other than 
The only other performance I can think of that she had a high profile was in Insomnia, where yeah. she played the cop. You know, and again, it's an actress I just love to hang out with more on screen. She's you know? a very interesting actress also, because one of the things I, I can't think of a more inverse correlation between her natural beauty mm. and she has a beautiful figure on top of that. But I don't get any sexual presence from her. And that's, I think, the the, the, the ring fence. I'm yeah. sure executives in a very, very narrow way saying, where's my erection? It, it's, it's strange because I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying it's it's like... There's no sexuality to her performance. Even one of the one of the boxers in this movie um, attacks her verbally by just saying like she has no breasts or whatever. And Hillary Swank has a character, yeah. And she has a beautiful a great, great comeback. She says, "I looked at your last fight. You were sucking the titties off the canvas more than that, or something." Like that. You know, variation that. But yeah, I, th I think it, ordinarily that should be a, a great um, password to longevity for her right. is to, to not rely on um, sexual um, sexual attraction from the audience. You know, um, it's one of the reasons why I think Glenn Close and Frances McDormand have have ter second, third, fourth acts or, or phase in their careers is because they come across at the beginning, say, oh, beautiful. You know, she's sexy, la la la, for teenage guys and young men. But then as we grow older, there's got to be layers, there's got to be something else. And they just peel it away and go, God, there's so much more to her. Right. That, and Hilary Swank avoided that. And yet that seems to be the penalty, the sort of yeah. the, the, the weight around her ankle, which is a dreadful pity. Yeah. Well, this was great fun. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen. And uh, I look forward to delving into Raging Bull next. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings. It is produced by George Alarcon Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is brought to you by Ring Magazine. Thanks for listening.